This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Firm-Rooted Change Through Christ. In the first half, Weatherford T. Clayton shares his address, The Rock of Our Redeemer. Then in the second half, D. Kelly Ogden speaks on The Miracle of Repentance. During our mission in Canada, my wife Lisa and I gave a last instruction to departing missionaries the day before they went home. Each of these young elders and sisters were heroes to us, and we wanted their transition home to be very, very successful. Our instruction was all given with love and good fun, and I particularly enjoyed instructing on dating and marriage, and several of them are sitting right there. (laughs) One afternoon, as I stood at the blackboard during our last instruction, the Spirit pressed Helaman 5.12 deeply into my mind. This scripture came from what could have been the Book of Mormon prophet Helaman's last instruction to his sons prior to their departure for their magnificent mission to the Nephites and the Lamanites. We all quoted the scripture together. And now, my sons, remember, remember that it is upon the rock of our Redeemer, who is Christ, the Son of God, that you must build your foundation that when the devil shall send forth his mighty winds, yea, his shafts in the whirlwind, yea, when all his hail and his mighty storm shall beat upon you, it shall have no power over you to drag you down to the gulf of misery and endless woe because of the rock upon which you are built, which is a sure foundation, a foundation whereon if men build, they cannot fall. What a magnificent verse of scripture. Think of it. Helaman promises us that if we build our foundation upon our Savior, we cannot fall regardless of what Satan throws at us. What a powerful promise. Our Savior gave the same promise in the Sermon on the Mount when he taught that, Whoso heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken unto a wise man who built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, because it was founded upon a rock. Now, I bet a lot of you primary graduates are thinking of a song. Would you sing it with me? The first two verses with hand motions. Are you ready? (laughs) The wise man built his house upon a rock. The wise man built his house upon a rock. The wise man built his house upon a rock. And the rains came tumbling down. A little louder now. The rains came down and the floods came up. The rains came down and the floods came up. The rains came down and the floods came up. And the house on the rock stood still. Thank you. You were marvelous. That was great. I think you should all become a chorus here at BYU. Doesn't this simple song teach a powerful lesson? Luke puts it slightly differently. He says that Christ said, Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them is like a man which built an house and digged deep and laid a foundation on a rock. And when the floods arose, the stream beat vehemently against the house, but it could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. 
When a person comes to Heavenly Father in Jesus Christ and hears their words and lives by them, he is building his house upon the rock. And regardless of Satan's efforts to destroy it, this type of house won't fall. Why? Because it is built upon the rock. We build it upon our Savior and Redeemer, who, as the scriptures say, is our rock and our fortress, our everlasting God, our rock and our salvation, the rock from whence ye are hewn, the stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, a spiritual rock, the rock of heaven, the stone of Israel. He, our Savior, has been, and as we follow him, can always be our rock. The Apostle Paul helps us understand Helaman's metaphor. In Ephesians 2, he wrote that as members of Christ's church, we are of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. Just as Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone of the church, we should allow him to become the chief cornerstone of our lives. We too must build our foundation on the teachings of the Savior and his apostles and prophets. And just as the household of God grows unto an holy temple in the Lord, we too can become more holy. What could be better than that? Let's take a closer look at how we do this. Christ said, Whosoever cometh to me, and heareth my sayings, and doeth them, I will liken unto a wise man. Christ invites us to come to him, to follow him, and to do as he does. Remember, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come and follow me. Follow me. And listen to the counsel which I shall give unto you, and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. How do we come to him? It begins with faith in Christ, and central to that faith, to true faith, is action. When we have faith in Jesus Christ, we want to act according to that faith. The Book of Mormon prophet Moroni calls this having real intent. For example, if we have faith in Christ, we come to church each Sunday. If we have faith in the Savior, we pay our tithes and offerings. If we have true faith in our Redeemer, we do something about it because we have real intent. And every time we act according to our faith in Him, we follow Him by hearing and doing His words. As we act with faith in him, the Lord confirms our faith by blessing us with peace, answers to prayer, direction, comfort, and joy. And so our foundation becomes stronger, wider, and deeper. As we act on his words, we are doing something called repenting. In the New Testament, repentance comes from the word metanoeo, which means to change one's mind or purpose. Isn't that interesting? Every time we turn to Christ, we are repenting. 
We are following him. When we sincerely pray to the Father, in a very real sense, we are repenting. When we read the scriptures and ponder them, we are repenting. As we make changes because of what we are learning about Christ and his gospel, we are repenting. When we do things that make us better, kinder, gentler, more sensitive and spiritual, more virtuous and true, we are repenting. Whenever we choose the better path, we are repenting. Though we all repent of things in our lives that are sinful, most of our repenting comes from hearing his words and doing them, from turning to him. This builds our foundation, and we want that foundation to be as big and as wide and as deep and sturdy as possible. A friend of mine, Michael Kerber, discovered these principles when he was studying the gospel. Initially, he didn't take the lessons too seriously. He said he was stubborn, and he did not read the Book of Mormon. However, due to a singular spiritual experience he and his wife had with the missionaries, he realized he had to make more than a casual commitment. He committed to read the Book of Mormon. One morning while on vacation, he was reading the Book of Mormon, and he reported his experience in these words. I was reading in Alma somewhere. I remember having come to the end of my reading for that morning and coming to a very clear and undeniable realization of the truth of the Book of Mormon. It is indescribable. All I know is that it is as though every cell of my body rang out or sang out or shouted out that this is it. This is true. Here it is. Look no further. You have found the answer to your prayers. I remember getting up and walking over to my wife and saying to her, we're joining this church. Audrey then asked, why now? What changed? And he said, I don't know, but I do know that this book is true. And if this book is true, then it was translated by a prophet of God. And if it was translated by a prophet of God, then I am joining this church. As we come unto the Savior by exercising faith in him and repenting every day, we prepare ourselves to follow Christ by receiving ordinances. The first ordinance of heaven is to follow Christ into baptism. Baptism is how we manifest our faith to the Father. The Book of Mormon Nephi teaches us to follow the Son with full purpose of heart, acting no hypocrisy and no deception before God, but with real intent, repenting of your sins, witnessing unto the Father that you are willing to take upon you the name of Christ by baptism. Yea, by following your Lord and your Savior down into the water. Behold, then shall ye receive the Holy Ghost. So we follow Christ by being baptized, which Elder Bednar refers to as a necessary initial cleansing of our soul from sin. Baptism continues the process of establishing our lives on the foundation we are building upon the rock. After we're baptized, we receive our next ordinance, confirmation. This is when the Father gives us his great gift, the gift of the Holy Ghost, the third member of the Godhead. This is called the baptism of fire. Nephi taught that after the baptism of water comes, 
the baptism of fire and of the Holy Ghost. And then can ye speak with the tongue of angels and shout praises unto the Holy One of Israel. Elder Bednar quoted President Marion G. Romney, who said that the baptism of fire by the Holy Ghost, quote, converts us from carnality to spirituality. It cleanses, heals, and purifies the soul. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, repentance, and water baptism are all preliminary and prerequisite to it. But the baptism of fire is the consummation. To receive this baptism of fire is to have one's garments washed in the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. Close quote. The blessings that come from baptism and confirmation are marvelous. So great that many people cannot wait to be confirmed in sacrament meeting after their baptism. Recently, a wonderful sister who'd been baptized the day before dressed and waited for an hour to be picked up for church, but no one came. She called her missionaries to ask them why. They didn't initially pick up, but listened to her message and immediately called her back. They said, It's 12.30 a.m., It's midnight. And she responded, Oh, no. And then she laughed really hard. (laughs) After receiving these first two ordinances, we have the privilege of living what Nephi calls after the manner of happiness, growing our faith, repenting each day, receiving the priesthood, studying the scriptures, praying with real intent, inviting others to come unto Christ, obtaining all the ordinances of the temple available to us, marrying and having a family, searching out our ancestors and performing ordinances for them, having many, many friends, and much, much more. Each of these activities is associated with great blessings, not just for ourselves, but for our families and our friends. These behaviors build and broaden our foundation. Think of our present-day apostles and their lives. Think of how substantial and formidable their foundations must be, built each day by repenting and righteous living. As we stand upon the foundation we're building upon Christ and his apostles, we notice the influences of Satan around us. Nephi calls these the mists of darkness or the temptations of the devil that blind the eyes and harden the hearts of the children of men and lead them away into broad roads that they perish and are lost. But we have heavenly help and protection from his influences Helaman's promise is true that when Satan shall send forth his whirlwind, hail, and mighty storm, they shall have no power over you because of the foundation upon which you are built, a foundation whereon if men build, they cannot fall. One such person who stayed on his foundation was my wife's great-great-grandfather, William Geddes. He joined the church after hearing the missionaries preaching on a street corner in Scotland in 1847 at the tender age of 14. When his family learned of his baptism, they threw his few belongings out the door and refused to let him be part of the family. He learned to survive on the streets while working in the coal mines, and he continued to learn and grow in the gospel, building his foundation on the Savior. A few years later, 
they allowed him to move back in with the family, but only if he agreed to never speak to them about his religion. He respected their wishes, but he continued his activity and growth in the gospel. Some time after returning to his family, William contracted cholera, and he became very ill. His condition worsened until he was near death. He begged his parents to let the Mormon missionaries come and give him a blessing. At first, they refused. But they finally relented because they felt this was the last request of their dying son. The elders came and administered to William. He was immediately healed and went out that night with the missionaries. Because he stood on his foundation, he was able to face temptations and trials even at a very young age. Brothers and sisters, we will all face challenges. The scripture doesn't say if we will feel Satan's storms, but when. Look around you. We see wars and rumors of wars, love of money and appearance, immorality, pornography, infidelity, drug, alcohol, and social media addiction, attacks on religious freedom, attacks on the nature of marriage and even attacks on the Savior himself. Isaiah saw our day and said, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness. We do not have to experience the evil or the darkness. We can join with the people of Alma and stand as witnesses of God at all times and in all things and in all places that we may be in. When we stand upon our foundation with the Savior and his apostles, we can see more clearly what is true and what is not. With the clear and magnificent light of our Savior, aided by the powerful influence of the Holy Ghost, we can detect the temptations of clever Satan in his efforts to weaken our faith. Remember that Paul warned us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness, in high places. Now, brothers and sisters, I need to speak soberly to you for a moment. Please listen carefully. Should you ever choose to step off that wonderful foundation you are building upon the rock for whatever reason, be warned that the mists of darkness will almost immediately surround you you will become vulnerable to the fiery darts of the adversary. The first emotion you will probably feel is confusion. You will not see clearly and likely won't be able to see where you've come from nor where you're going. Relationships with people who have loved and blessed you will change. Can you feel Satan's shafts in the whirlwind here? You may find yourself wanting to hide what you are doing from others who love you. You will likely find yourself growing irritated and angry more easily. You will probably find fault with others more frequently, even those closest to you. You may become casual in keeping covenants, and with time, 
simply not keep them at all? Can you feel Satan's mighty storm? You will most likely find that you're just not as happy. With time, if you do not step back on your foundation, you may forget the many, many marvelous things the Lord has given you and find yourself falling away into forbidden paths and become lost. I join the Book of Mormon prophet Jacob in saying to you, O my beloved brothers and sisters, repent ye and enter in at the straight gate and continue in the way which is narrow until ye shall obtain eternal life. O be wise. What can I say more? Now, brothers and sisters, should this ever happen to you, repent and get back on your foundation. Start building your house again. Regardless of where you find yourself off your foundation, you can come back. The Savior's atonement is real, and through him we have power to resist any of Satan's temptations and be forgiven for our sins. As the Savior said, Behold, He who has repented of his sins, the same is forgiven. And I, the Lord, remember them no more. By this you may know if a man repenteth of his sins. Behold, he will confess them and forsake them. Remember what Helaman promised his sons? He promised that Satan's mighty winds and storms, hail and whirlwinds, shall have no power over you because of the rock upon which ye are built. This is a true promise. Now let's examine who gave this promise and to whom he gave it. It was a faithful father teaching his sons to prepare and empower them as they went forth wearing the armor of God. These teachings were given in a family. Throughout the scriptures we read about fathers and mothers teaching their families. What does this mean to us? It means we aren't building our foundations just for ourselves. We're building them for ourselves and our loved ones. We who have come to know the goodness of God and his blessings must build a foundation big enough and broad enough and sturdy enough to bless our marriage and to raise our children We protect them from the fiery darts of Satan by teaching them from their youth to build their foundations upon the rock. We must help them find faith in Christ, repent, and obtain every ordinance. It is our privilege and responsibility to teach and help raise a sin-resistant generation. Now, what could be more important than that? In 1869, my great-great-grandfather, Edwin S. Graham, wrote a letter to his children prior to traveling to Texas from Iowa. Having a strong Christian faith and knowing that he might not live to see them again, he gave them what could have been called his last instruction. He wrote, In the event that I should not live to return to you, I know that in your mother— You will have the affection and devotion that you could possibly have, as long as she might live. Robbie, you and Lizzie are so young that should you forever be bereft of your father's care, advice, and instructions, live in the fear of God, your Redeemer. 
Never wrong in any way your fellow man. In morals, be ever particularly careful, prudent, discreet. Never lie. Never make a harsh promise. Master. Always master. Never let passion master you. In all things, be true to yourselves and to others with God's blessing. May he ever guide you. Great-great-grandfather was right. We must live right in the fear or respect of God. Helaman was right. We must build our foundation on our Savior. If we do so, we cannot fall, regardless of what Satan does. Let me repeat that. Regardless of what Satan does, we cannot fall. Heavenly Father loves us so much that he prepared a perfect plan of salvation. In the center of that plan is the atonement of Jesus Christ. If we choose to come unto Christ and receive his gospel, we can return home to live with our Father again, with our family, and there together enjoy eternal life. His perfect plan is working. I know that God lives and that Jesus Christ is the Christ. I know that Thomas S. Munson is the prophet and that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the Savior's Church. I testify that all these things are true. I testify that they are central to the foundation that we are building upon the rock of our Redeemer, who is Christ, the Son of God, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Firm-Rooted Change Through Christ. We've just heard from Weatherford T. Clayton. After the break, we'll return with D. Kelly Ogden for the Miracle of Repentance. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Firm-Rooted Change Through Christ. Next is D. Kelly Ogden, BYU professor of ancient scripture at the time of this address, titled The Miracle of Repentance. There is no principle of the gospel more important than repentance. At least that's what the Lord seems to be saying in the scriptures. Several times he instructed his servants to say nothing but repentance unto this generation. Well, does he mean that literally? Is every topic of all the missionary lessons supposed to be repentance? Does repentance have to be the subject of every classroom discussion in the Church? Of course not. Well, why did he say it that way then? The Lord was using a figure of speech called hyperbole, which is an intentional exaggeration to emphasize a point. He said it in a hyperbolic way to stress the fact that there's nothing more important in all the gospel than to get people to repent. This one principle is so vital that it towers above all others in primacy and urgency. Driven by faith, repentance is the single most important principle to live in order to make the Savior's Atonement effective 
and meaningful in our lives. Repentance is not just feeling guilty for having sinned, nor is it mere forgetfulness, pushing the sin way back in our mind to conveniently not be reminded of it. It's an attitude change, a behavior change. We repent not only of sins, but of sinning. And we're willing to do whatever is necessary to remove the stain and the pain. We turn to the Savior. He is the only one who can take away our sins because He paid the price for them. In true repentance, godly sorrow and suffering are necessary. According to scriptures, if you haven't suffered, you haven't repented. We've all been through the anguish. Sometimes we feel like pounding our heads against a wall, wondering how we could be so foolish as to do some of the sinful things we do. We hurt inside. And it's not just guilt for being caught or the feeling of embarrassment for having to confess. It's godly sorrow we're feeling. Years ago, I saw a painting in an old instructor magazine entitled Turning Toward the Light. It made quite an impression on me. It portrays the stages a person goes through to be totally rid of his or her sins, from the agonizing pain of darkness to the glimmer of hope and recognition that there is a light we can turn to, and then fully committing to dedicate ourselves to that light. Who is it in the scriptures that comes to your mind who's given us the most detailed, the most graphic portrayal of the pains of a damned soul? You probably think first of Alma the Younger. And we're glad that he was willing to divulge and actually carve into the record those intimate and agonizing details of what he went through to be forgiven of his sins. He described wading through tribulation, the bitterness, the bonds, the abyss, the inexpressible horror at the thought of having to stand before God and answer for all that he had done. Alma wrote that he was harrowed up by the memory of his many sins. What's a harrow? Those involved in cultivating field crops know that it's an implement that's dragged behind an animal, or now behind a tractor to break up the hard ground for planting. If a harrow were dragged over a live body, it would certainly become an instrument of torture. Alma also wrote that he was racked with torment. What's a rack? An instrument of torture. Alma chose his words intentionally. He was tortured by his sins, just as the man portrayed in the painting. Alma later taught his own wayward son, who was sinning grievously while serving a mission, let your sins trouble you. Meaning what? Let your sins bother you to bring you down to severe depression? No. Alma said, let your sins trouble you with that trouble that will bring you down unto repentance. Be glad to suffer the godly sorrow now so that you won't have to suffer the full effects of your sins later. President Spencer W. Kimball taught, No one can ever be forgiven of any transgression until there is repentance, and one has not repented until he has bared his soul and admitted his intentions and weaknesses without excuses or rationalizations. 
he must admit to himself that he has grievously sinned. When he has confessed to himself without the slightest minimizing of the offense or rationalizing its seriousness or soft-pedaling its gravity and admits it is as big as it really is, then he's ready to begin his repentance." Unquote. We have a worry these days. Many in this generation seem to be growing up with a carefree attitude, Oh, I can sin now, and I can always repent later. It only takes a few months to waiting, and then I can go on a mission or I can go into the temple. Elder Richard G. Scott warned, The thought of intentionally committing serious sin now and repenting later is perilously wrong. Premeditated sin has greater penalties and is harder to overcome. We must confess and forsake our sins now and not put off our repentance. Alma warned not to procrastinate the day of our repentance, as the old rabbis used to say. You can't repent the day before you die because you don't know what day you're going to die. When we returned to Utah in the summer of 2000 after our mission in Chile, we found our oldest daughter dating a young man named Mikkel, a lively return missionary who was also involved in theater programs here at Brigham Young University. He was a fairly frequent visitor in our home, and we came to like him. That fall, our daughter was awakened one Sunday morning to hear some terrible news. Her friend Mikkel had been visiting a cousin along the Oregon coast, and the two of them were far out on the pier when a sudden storm came up and swept them off into the water. His cousin was battered among the rocks and was found and rushed off to a hospital where he struggled for his life. Mikkel was apparently swept away by the undertow, and his body was not recovered. Eight days later, the very day of a memorial service for him, his body washed up onto the shore and could finally have a proper burial. Mikkel was a good young man of 25 years. I don't think he knew that he was going to be leaving the earth that day. Sister Davidson was one of our extraordinary missionaries in Chile. When she finished her mission, she returned to school here at BYU and continued serving in her ward. One Sunday afternoon, while crossing the street, near her apartment complex, she was struck by a car and killed. She was on her way to a meeting and found herself on the way to a different meeting. I spoke in a memorial service for her a few days later. I don't believe Sister Davidson knew that she would be leaving the earth that day. The fact is, none of us knows exactly when we're going to be departing this mortal sphere, so we should be ready always, never procrastinating the day of our repentance, but repenting daily and keeping ourselves prepared to meet God. So don't wait for the pressure situations of mission and marriage to arrive to do your repenting. If the announcements and invitations have already been sent out, then you have the interview with the bishop or member of the stake presidency, and you realize together that you're not ready for the sacred covenant making in the house of the Lord. Well, then what do you do? Could be pretty embarrassing, couldn't it? The embarrassment doesn't matter. You don't ever want to go into the holy temple if you're not worthy. 
to take upon yourself the most sacred covenants and make the most binding promises of your whole life when you're not spiritually prepared or worthy to do so would bring upon you serious condemnation. Before going to the temple, before going to sacrament meeting, before kneeling to pray, be reconciled to Heavenly Father and to the Savior. If there's any conflict or friction between you and any other person, get it resolved now. Scriptures teach us that forsaking of sins is necessary. The Lord said, By this ye may know if a man repenteth of his sins. Behold, he will confess them and forsake them. To forsake means to give up, to abandon. Indeed, we must abandon all sin as soon as we can. It might require a lengthy and mighty struggle to rid ourselves of the most perplexing weaknesses we have. But it's essential as soon as possible to expel sin from our lives. That is forsaking. But there's another angle for us to look at regarding forsaking our sins. When I was first called to work with the missionaries at the Missionary Training Center here in Provo, Utah, I quickly learned that by far most of the elders and sisters were prepared and worthy to be there. Those who were not quickly found out that they couldn't learn the lessons, they couldn't love a companion. Nothing seemed to go right because they couldn't get the Spirit. And they couldn't get the Spirit because they were not clean. Those few had to return home and repent. And then many of them, fortunately, came back to the training center and made it work. Although a great majority of missionaries are prepared and worthy to be there, learning to represent the Lord Jesus Christ, I noticed that even among them there were some who caught themselves agonizing over past sins. They had fully repented, but they still had a bright recollection of their recent and sometimes distant sins. And they became depressed as they remembered the gross sins of their past. Well, what hadn't they done? They hadn't forsaken those sins in yet another sense. Part of forsaking is forgiving yourself and putting the sins behind you. Burying away the old man of sin, as the Apostle Paul put it, leaving them buried and not digging them up anymore. Sometimes people will sincerely desire to repent and secure Heavenly Father's complete forgiveness, saying to the Savior, Here, Lord, here's a package of all my sins. Please take it away. And He will. Sometimes we go back and say, Wait a minute, Lord, give me back a few of those sins. I want to suffer a little more for them. No. When you've totally repented, you must forsake those sins, forget about them, bury them away, and not bring them up anymore. Jesus taught this beautiful principle in agricultural terms from Luke 9. He says, No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. In other words, when you've planted your life in a more spiritual furrow, Keep your eyes straight ahead and don't look back to the old sins, the old people, the old places 
Someone suggested that when Satan reminds you of your past, you just remind him of his future. (laughs) Keep your eyes looking ahead and on the Savior. I really like some words from Isaiah chapter 54, verse 4. Thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth. I'm taking those words out of their historical context, but I find the phrase itself profoundly meaningful. We all know that nobody gets through teenage years unscathed. Everybody has problems growing up, some worse than others, but it's imperative that we forget the shame of our youth. Repent, put it behind you, and move on. Even Joseph Smith confessed that during his youth he struggled as he wrote with all kinds of sins and mingling with all kinds of society, I frequently fell into many foolish errors and displayed the weakness of youth and the foibles of human nature, which I am sorry to say led me into divers temptations offensive in the sight of God. He went on to explain that he was never guilty of any greater malignant sins. He was never disposed to commit such, but he did have to repent and put those indiscretions behind him. So did the Apostle Paul. He wrote to the saints in Macedonia, Forgetting those things which are behind, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God. One sister missionary, bearing her testimony during the first hours at the MTC, explained that she had experienced long, hard struggle to prepare herself to be worthy to represent the Lord as a missionary. She didn't go into any detail of her past sins, but she did let us know that she had gone through an extended period of serious repentance. At one point in her testimony, though, she stopped and smiled and said, You know, I... I can't even remember the person I used to be. When you have fully repented of your sins and are converted to the Lord, you are born again. You become a new person. You don't have to be concerned about those old sins because that old person who committed those sins is buried away. That's not you. You have become a new person who would not commit such sins. Therefore, you can forgive yourself Forsake those sins and forget your past. It's like Sister Ogden's organ playing. Whenever she makes a mistake, she has to forget it and move on. She can't dwell on it. There's much more to get right. Jesus helps you become a new and different person who has learned the divine principles of forgiving and forgetting. The Hebrew word for atonement is kippur, as in Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The basic meaning of Kippur is to cover up. The Savior has suffered for and covered up the sins of us all pending our complete repentance. The scriptures teach that there are awful consequences of not repenting, but there are extraordinary rewards for repenting. The gospel of Jesus Christ is occasionally referred to in the scriptures as the gospel of repentance. You know, the word gospel means good news. Therefore, it's the good news of repentance. We sometimes look upon repentance as a punishment, a distasteful or a negative thing. It does involve some pain, of course. But genuine repentance is a blessing. 
a happy, positive thing. Two questions are often asked. How can I know if I've been forgiven of my sins? King Benjamin's answer is that you'll have peace of conscience. By that peace and the Spirit, you will know. Another question. If the Lord says he'll forgive and forget, why can't I forget? If I sit down and think about it, why can I still conjure up all the lurid details of my past sins? The Lord leaves the memory in your mind as an early warning system. It's protection against going back to the old ways, the old sins. Alma didn't say he could remember his sins no more. He said he could remember his pain no more. He could remember his sins, all right. But he was not harrowed up by the memory of those sins because he had repented of them. When you're fully repentant, you're born again and you become a new person. And that cloud of darkness that once overshadowed you is removed. Whatever your past has been, your future is spotless. So tie yourself to your potential, not to your past. One of the most beautiful truths of the plan of happiness is that the Lord forgives and forgets. He chooses what he'll remember. When you forsake Babylon, God forgets that you ever lived there. Unless you've murdered someone, that's premeditated murder, or committed the sin against the Holy Ghost, as very few have, you can be totally forgiven of all your sins. That is indeed good news. But you must ask. The Lord said, Thy sins are forgiven thee according to thy petition. That's Doctrine and Covenants 90, verse 1. One day I was working at my desk in BYU's Joseph Smith building, and I had to erase some things that were written on the top of some student assignments. So I reached into the drawer where I have a box with pencils with an eraser at the end of each pencil. I grabbed one of the erasers and began vigorously erasing. And while I was erasing, I admit that the smell of erasers brought up some nostalgic feelings. All through the years of growing up, just before elementary school began each year, I remember going out with my mother to buy school supplies, paper, Notebooks, pencils, rulers, and erasers. Well, is that negative thinking or what? We bought erasers because they were a real part of learning. We knew we would make mistakes and we needed erasers. So that's the way life is, too. We knew we would come to earth to this education probation and make mistakes. We need erasers. Unfortunately, our mistakes are not written in ink, but just in pencil, and they can be totally erased. Sister Ogden and I sometimes find ourselves sitting alone at our kitchen table eating a meal. That's okay, because we're both voracious readers. We always have a stack of reading material like the newspaper or the ensign, Reader's Digest, National Geographic, or one of her health nut publications. One day I was thumbing through a magazine when a certain page caught my attention. 
Half the page showed a man with a serious look on his face, and superimposed on the picture was a question in big print, Are you cleansed? Well, that question aroused my curiosity. I noticed that the page was advertising a whole line of cleanses, adrenal cleanse, blood cleanse, heart cleanse, joint cleanse, kidney cleanse, liver cleanse, prostate cleanse. Then I noticed something that caught my attention even more. Just below the picture of the man was the sentence, At last, a complete cleanse line from a name I can trust. Now, you might suspect how that sentence registered in my mind. Yes, I thought, I certainly do know about a complete cleanse that comes through a name I can trust. In Santiago, Chile, there are at least four ambulance companies in that city of over six million people. One of the companies is called Rescate Total, Total Rescue. Every time I saw one of those ambulances driving by, I thought, no, I know where Total Rescue comes from. His name is Jesus Christ, and His is the only name under heaven whereby salvation comes, from whom a complete cleanse can come. Again, because He's the one who paid the price. He can take away all our transgressions. You know, sometimes we look uh, with envy, almost, with a, a new convert stepping out of the baptismal font. We feel almost jealous of the fact that there goes the, the purest, cleanest person on earth right at that moment. We think, oh, if I could only be baptized again and be freed from all my sins. The fact is, we can be freed from all our sins regularly. If we go to sacrament meeting each week, we go there having thoroughly repented of all our sins, and then we worthily partake of that little piece of bread, drink that little cup of water, we may leave that meeting totally void of sin. We can literally be clean and pure as we walk out of sacrament meeting. Each week, we experience again and again the baptism of repentance. Actually, the whole process of repentance requires more than just a cleanse. And we need to do more than just repair all damage done. Early in 1984, when returning to our home in Jerusalem, I, I must have been handling some heavy suitcases in such a way that something went wrong in my lower back. For several months, I found myself in periodic excruciating pain, apparently from some bone fragments sticking in the largest nerve in my body, the sciatic nerve that goes down through the spine and into the legs. After three months of experimental treatments in Israeli doctors' offices and hospitals and not being able to function because of the intense pain. My doctor put me on the strongest painkiller he could prescribe without personally accompanying me and sent me on a plane flight across the world to Salt Lake City for a back operation. The surgery was successful. After some weeks of recovery, I flew back to the Holy Land to resume what I loved doing teaching and 
guiding students on field trips throughout the lands of the Bible and, over the years, climbing Mount Sinai a total of 18 times. I learned something from that painful ordeal. It's not enough to repair the damage done. I have to continually strengthen my back so that it doesn't happen again. So with repentance, we must cleanse ourselves of all that's wrong inside, repair the damage that's been done, and continually strengthen ourselves to become more and more resistant to sin and more and more capable of sustaining light and truth from Him who is our strength. It's the daily diligence to prayer and scriptures, along with exact obedience to all other commandments and serving others and worshiping in the temple, that we keep ourselves strong and avoid the sinning. Each of us will stand before our Father and look into His divine eyes and report on what we've done with this brief moment of time. We will all have photographic memories and instant recall, a perfect recollection of all we've done on earth. And that perfect awareness will either send us into deep despair and remorse or fill us with happiness and gratitude. It's up to us. We will all live forever, no exceptions. And we're determining each day, by how we're behaving down here, exactly where and with whom we will live forever. Whatever has gone wrong in our lives that has tainted and darkened our souls can be erased, cleansed, removed, and purified by the power of sincere repentance. It's a miracle. Any evil words or deeds continue to reverberate through the universe until we've paid the price of godly sorrow and total repentance. Then they are completely obliterated. They are not there anymore. And we become a new person, full of light. Brothers and sisters, it makes me happy to talk about the twin miracles of repentance and forgiveness. It makes me happy to talk about the Savior and applying His atoning blood through the miracle of repentance. That way we acquire more and more light until the day when we can become perfectly holy as He is. I testify of and rejoice in these beautiful truths. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Firm-Rooted Change Through Christ with thoughts from Weatherford T. Clayton and D. Kelly Ogden. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.